Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Joining me is Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, the former Chief of Staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell, currently a professor at the College of William and Mary. Welcome, Colonel Wilkerson, to Pushback. Good to be with you again, Aaron. I'm wondering your thoughts right now as we are in these convention days about the state of militarism inside both parties. Trump campaigned on a quasi anti-war platform, pretending to be anti-war. We know how that turned out when he actually took office. Meanwhile, Biden is not really offering, I think, much of an alternative when it comes to foreign policy, a lot of adopting a lot of hawkish rhetoric featuring cold warriors at the convention, just picked up an endorsement from John Negroponte, veteran of the dirty wars under the Reagan administration in Central America, also served under the George W. Bush administration. I'm wondering your overall thoughts right now on the state of militarism inside both parties and whether you see any room internally to offer a dissenting point of view. I think it's very difficult to derail empire. And despite what most Americans might think, since 1945, that's been the evolutionary path the United States has been on. From Harry Truman to Barack Obama, we have been building an empire. 9-11 and the shock of 9-11 sort of put some real teeth in that evolutionary process, accelerated it catalytically, if you will, um, but it's been there for a long time. And if you're an empire, you grow to the point where you feel like every problem in the world needs to be handled swiftly, decisively, and usually with hard power. What you find is that swiftness and that so-called decisiveness winds up being more often than not a failure. Um, I asked someone the other day in the military, still active duty, I said, tell me when the last time was the United States won a war. He said, what do you mean win a war? We don't win wars anymore. We just fight them. And I said, okay, I'll give you that. That's what empires normally do. An empire would claim as long as it pushes its border ever further out, as long as it puts its troops in more and more lodgements along those borders, as long as it has more and more peoples, however murderously brought into its boundaries, feels like it's succeeding. So maybe there are some people in our Congress, in the White House, in the Department of Defense and elsewhere that think we are succeeding. What we're doing is making it inevitable that our empire, our imperial reign, will eventually be contested by those whom we are taking in and will bankrupt us at the same time. So we're looking at the collapse of the American empire. When? Anybody's guess, but I would say it's probably more imminent than not. What do you say to people, some of them on the left, who believe that having Trump in office because he is so inept, so blatant in his contempt for human life, uh, that that actually having him in power actually could hasten the fall of the U.S. empire versus having someone like Joe Biden, who is more of a skilled steward of the U.S. empire. Well, I think if you're talking about a disastrous end to the empire, rather than, say, a informed leadership that finds an off ramp, and I'd use there the example of Britain, 
from about 1890 with some real contestation of that off-ramp caused by World War I and World War II. But from about 1890 on, the United States was replacing Britain. And so by the Suez Canal crisis in 1956, Britain was on that off-ramp full speed ahead. And Britain is a middling power today, but it is a power today. It still exists. It's still a functioning democracy. It's still relatively successful. So that's one outcome. Trump is a catalyst for the more disastrous outcome. Look at what has happened in just the short time Trump has been in office. NATO is in peril anyway, but it was a long-term peril. The greatest political and military alliance probably in the modern age uh, is, is virtually on collapse, on the point of collapse. Germany's ready to leave. France is ready to leave. England, uh, through Brexit, has already ostensibly left. Um, there are all manner of problems with NATO that they simply cannot handle. Um, Putin has as his first objective the dissolution of NATO. Second objective, the dissolution of the European Union. Third objective, putting the European Union at his beck and call through more or less energy that the European Union can't do without. So Putin is succeeding. Uh, he is restoring the greatness of Russia, if you will, through a very clever strategy of maximizing the potential available to him through our grievous strategic eras, which have been quite manifest. So one of which was expanding NATO and ensuring its eventual destruction. So I think what we're seeing is Trump accelerating this demise in a way that might be far more catastrophic if it's continued than it would be with, let's say, people like Biden, people like Obama, people who believe in the empire's writ, but are a lot softer, a lot less arrogant, a lot less ruthless, and therefore a lot, a lot less off-putting in the world with Germans, with Japanese, with Chinese, and so forth than others like Trump, they could fashion that off-ramp a lot quicker, a lot more smoothly, and get on it in a fashion that might be helpful rather than catastrophic. I see the way Trump's doing it is leading to catastrophe. I don't want to get too sidetracked here because I wanted to discuss the state of militarism and also the amount of money we're spending still on the military in the time of the pandemic. But just to challenge one thing you said, in terms of Putin's objectives, I don't study Russia internally too closely, but I do study the obsession and the fixation on Russia here in the US. And rather than seeing Putin as someone who wants to dismantle NATO or dismantle the EU, what about just seeing him as a Russian leader who feels betrayed by the NATO expansion that you talked about, which contrary to the promises of the Bush one administration, the George Herbert Walker Bush administration, has expanded eastward up to Russia's borders, accelerated greatly under Bill Clinton. And Putin, rather than dismantling NATO, wanting to dismantle NATO or dismantle the EU, simply wants to stop the expansion to his borders, which he sees and Russia sees, I think justifiably, as a security threat. Well, I don't disagree with you. Um, I'd, I would probably clap for everything you just said. I probably give Putin a little more credit as a strategist than you do, though. Um, I would be doing exactly what Putin is doing. And you're right. My motivation would be, at least in part, some of my motivation is I want to be a great power again. And great powers create empires. 
and Putin wants to create an empire, just like the Soviet Union had. Um, but part of his motivation, if not the visceral part of his motivation, is what we did. I agree with that. But that doesn't stop me from realizing that he's also a brilliant chess player and that he's also rebuilding the Soviet empire one step at a time. And that's not a criticism of a negative criticism of Putin. It's just a comment on the reality of power. Got that. Okay. So speaking of the reality of power, the House recently passed a $740 billion Pentagon budget. There were amendments that were defeated in both chambers that would have called for cutting Pentagon spending by 10% and putting that into social spending, especially for low-income communities in the U.S. That was defeated. What are your thoughts on the amount of money we're spending on the military, especially during a global health crisis that is causing a special, uh, uh, special havoc inside the U.S., among the worst outbreaks in, in the world? And do you see a connection between the two, this high level of spending on the military, high focus on the military, and a relative incapacity, incapacity to respond to the pandemic? I do. Um, and it's more complex, perhaps, than your question suggests. It's, it's a good question. Uh, the complexities of it are uh, almost incredible when you start thinking about all the pieces of that problem you just outlined. What we have happening, of course, as I indicated, is the empire is overextended. It's spending far too much on maintaining the periphery, uh, something like 80 to $100 billion a year to maintain seven, 800 bases that we have overseas. Um, in comparison, China has a few, Russia has a few, but all the other countries in the world together don't have as many as 80 or 85. We've got over 700, maybe closer to 800 bases. That's just one indicator of the complexity and the difficulty of being an empire like we are and trying to maintain it and spending the money we're spending on it. And you think about, uh, let's look at the dimensions of this empire now. You just described that we have a COVID-19 pandemic crisis. We do, we, what are we up to now? 170,000 dead, looking very much like if I believe the virologists and epidemiologists at my university, they were gonna have a quarter of a million probably by election time or slightly afterwards. Um, that's more than we've lost in all the wars since 1945. Um, if you look at the depth of that crisis and you look at the misplaced priorities caused by this maintenance of empire and this incredible spending on this empire, um, it's just, it, it, it dwarfs the imagination in terms of conceiving that anybody, any, especially a state, would do this sort of thing. Um, we on top of that are getting ready to spend one plus trillion dollars on our nuclear weapons complex. When we ought to be, that's one of the most dangerous things we're doing, let me point out quickly, when we ought to be thinking about fashioning new arms control agreements to deal with this existential weapons system that we, the Russians, the Indians, the Pakistanis and others maintain on this, on this globe. At any moment, we could have a nuclear catastrophe that would, uh, you know, we could forget about climate change because we would have already changed the climate so drastically by the use of these nuclear weapons that climate change would be an afterthought. Um, 
we're doing all these things at enormous costs, while, as you pointed out, we have these other things that are significantly impacting our ability to hold the empire together domestically. And it's not just the COVID-19 pandemic, it's the welfare of our citizens. Black Lives Matter is a movement of uh, veracity. It has a reason for being a movement, and that movement is systemic racism. That movement is something that's been with us since 1865, indeed before that, but certainly since 1865 in its more insidious form of being economic deprivation rather than slavery itself. So we have so many domestic problems, infrastructure crumbling, bridges falling down, roads being torn up. We're not rebuilding. And if we are rebuilding, we're rebuilding in the very same way we did before. We're not rebuilding for a renewable, resilient future one that will be threatened significantly by the climate crisis. We're really not doing anything very well or right. And that's a consequence in part at least of our fascination with and attempt to maintain and even expand this empire that we've created since 1945. It's a, it's a well down which we throw trillions of dollars we have probably spent somewhere between seven and $10 trillion. That's enough to pay for every kid's education from now until doomsday. That's enough to have a healthcare system unparalleled in the world. That's enough to pay off everybody's loan probably for the next decade. It's incredible. We've thrown that away to kill 300,000 people in the world, put 12 million people into refugee camps, and probably destroyed between 300 and 400,000 homes in the world, all because on 9-11, we lost 3,000 citizens. Tragic enough, but not worth that kind of recompense. That's how crazy we are, Aaron. Well, speaking of crazy, let me ask you about the state of arms control, which you mentioned. So just as we're speaking, Talks have recently broken down once again. The third round of negotiations between the Trump administration and Russia on extending New START, the last remaining treaty that limits the uh, nuclear stockpiles of both the U.S. and Russia is set to it's set to expire in February of 2021, and Russia has warned that unless talks accelerate, that there, there will not be time to come up with an extension. Russia has said it will agree to an extension unconditionally. The U.S., though, wants to bring China in and get China to commit to certain limitations on its stockpiles. What, what do you make of the Trump administration's position and its strategy here? I don't disagree with bringing China in and eventually bringing Pakistan and India and Israel and North Korea and the rest of the nuclear powers, however small or however medium. I don't object to bringing them in, but I think diplomacy is the art of small bites not huge bites. So I think the first thing we need to do is reassemble, if you will, our nuclear arms control with the largest nuclear weapons possessor, Russia. That needs to be done. I agree with Putin there. I, that needs to be done and it needs to lead the others. Then in the more critical, like strategic arms control, China needs to be brought in and possibly India, though, if, if you're familiar with that relationship, you know, that might be a little bit difficult. So you might have to go piecemeal there too. Eventually my goal would be to have a multilateral arms control regime that would include all the nuclear powers. And if Israel didn't want to come into it, I'd drag her in kicking and screaming. 
or I'd threaten to cut off all U.S. assistance from now until hell freezes over uh, in order to get Israel to come into the regime because we need a global regime that limits these weapons and that takes the non-proliferation treaty seriously rather than disregarding it and ultimately works to get as low as possible. I'm not naive enough to think that we could ever get down to zero. Colin Powell and I used to have these discussions, but I do know that we have analytical proof that we could get by with three, 400 weapons. Russia would then do the same, China the same and so forth. China doesn't have that many right now, but it's getting ready to have more because of what we're doing. It's getting very concerned and it's gonna build some more weapons. That's another danger. So we need to get these stockpiles down to as low as humanly possible. If, if Americans want to read something that will scare them to death, read Will, uh, Bill Perry, former Secretary of Defense William Perry, and Tom Kalina's book, The Button, and understand just how close we are at any given moment, and think about Donald Trump in this regard, to a U.S. president, for example, uh, using nuclear weapons. And then think about the hearing that Bob Corker had in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee when he was chairman. And Senator Reich, who incidentally is now the chairman of that committee, uh, vouchsafed the opinion that the president ought to have the right to use nuclear weapons first and he shouldn't have to consult with anybody. Do you know how dangerous that is? I mean, I'm sure you do. Just think about it for a moment. Donald Trump can use nuclear weapons first and he doesn't have to consult anyone? or any president for that matter. Pyongyang needs to understand that uh, they are dealing with a person who's a commander in chief right now, who is very focused on defending this country and he will do what is necessary to defend this country. So lest anyone be confused as most people would be. And I have sat through, through scores of hours of arguments about the power of the commander in chief, the power of Congress, et cetera. Uh, from a very practical standpoint, the president of the United States is going to make this decision and he's gonna make it quite quickly if he has to. And uh, so I want everyone to understand how this works. And it isn't a gray situation. It isn't a situation where lawyers are gonna get involved and they're gonna argue about proportionality and all these other standards we talk about. This, unfortunately, we live in a world that uh, is full of uh, realistic decisions that have to be made and they will be made. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And yet that's where we are today. We, we have taken the post-Cold War period 92 to 95, 96 or so, where we were really making progress. We were in Russia destroying their warheads. We were really making progress. We were bringing totals down from 30,000 on their side, 28,000 on our side, down to around 2,000 each, and we were gonna go below that. Look at where we are now. We're back in a nuclear arms race, and we have an idiot in the White House. I wanted to ask you, since you mentioned him, Colin Powell, who you used to work for, he recently spoke at the Democratic National Convention endorsing Biden, and he is featured prominently in a new book by Robert Draper about uh, the Bush administration's war on Iraq. And there's a point in it where Draper is describing the months before the war where there's talk or there's thought to possibly Powell resigning because he has misgivings about the war. But this is what Powell ultimately told Draper. He says, I knew I didn't have any choice.
what choice did I have? He's the president, unquote. So basically, Powell is saying that he would not, he did not want to resign because he did not want to go against the president, George Bush. But let me ask you, if Powell had resigned back then, do you think that could have stopped the war? Let me back up a minute and say everyone should read Tim Bakken's book. He's a professor of law at West Point. And even though on page eight, nine or 10, I can't remember which, he takes me to task. Um, it, it's, it's about people like Pompeo and others who make loyalty the very first characteristic that they're going to adhere to. Um, that's what's suggested by Draper's book, and that's what's suggested by Powell's remark. But to your question, here's the reality of this situation, as I saw it then as a, and as I still see it after vastly more research by my students and me. Had Powell resigned, Condi Rice, who was National Security Advisor, as you'll recall, was standing in the wings salivating to be Secretary of State. So had Powell resigned, the newspapers would have done their usual, a week of, whoa, 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 Powell resigns. Oh, my God, this is not a war we should enter. A week later, Condi would have been ensconced, confirmed in the State Department, Secretary of State, and we'd be going to war anyway. So, uh, okay, I wish I had resigned. I wish Powell had resigned. I suspect maybe in, his, in the recesses of his heart, he probably does too. He wouldn't be human if he didn't. At the same time, we both realized it would not have main, made any difference at all with this administration. George Bush was going to war. The most pertinent comment that Draper records Bush having said in his book is that Bush admits his Christianity, is, which I think was genuine, was bothering him because of his bloodlust. He said his bloodlust was up after 9-11. He wanted to bash somebody. And so even his Christianity couldn't hold him back. Huh. Colin Powell wouldn't have held him back. Well, we'll never know. Do you think that it was the prospect of Powell resigning back then? Was it ever serious? Was he ever seriously considering it? He had to have been because I'll tell you a story, Aaron. I don't think I've told anybody else this story. In early August of 2002, he called me into his office and he said he wanted to make me his chief of staff. I was working for Richard Haas on the policy planning staff at the time. And I said, well, can I give that some thought? Because that's a totally different job and I'm not sure I want to do it. He said, sure, 24 hours. I need to know. And I turned to leave the office and he said, there's one other thing you need to know. If you take this job, you will not be able to stay in the State Department. You will be my man. And if I leave, you will have to leave with me. And I said, okay, is there something you're trying to tell me? He said, take it as you will. Just remember, when I leave, you leave. It will be abrupt. I said, okay, thank you for letting me know that. So going back to the Pentagon budget and the pandemic, let's say... President Trump in his second term or Joe Biden in his first term, let's say they wanted to start trimming from the Pentagon budget and putting it into public health to deal with something like the pandemic. What kind of resistance would they face inside the halls of Congress and in Washington overall, where so many lobbyists exist and have a heavy role in shaping politics? 
Well, Aaron, the first obstacle they would find would be in their own minds, just as Barack Obama was really the tool of Wall Street in, in many respects. And when I say tool of Wall Street, I don't mean that necessarily derisively. I mean that he was so beholden to them for money for his campaign that you you, you just can't do this, give me $7 billion and I won't do anything for you. You get $7 billion and you do something for them. Um, the same thing goes with the military industrial complex, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Boeing, you name it. There's a whole list of them now and all the private contractor companies and all the things associated with the public function of war, which we privatized to a great degree. So that's an inhibition right away to your own thinking, to your own mind, because you know you're alienating all this potential money out there. But if you can get past that, if you can muster the courage, which Barack Obama couldn't, I liked Obama, but he couldn't muster the courage to do these things. If you can muster the courage, if you can say to them, I'm gonna do this, I'm going to submit a defense budget and I'm going to go to bat for it with the American people in such a way that you're going to have a real problem defeating it because the Congress is going to try to defeat it. And that defense budget is going to be more rational. It's going to be more apportioned to the real threat America faces. And it's going to take into consideration the opportunity cost of spending this money on defense rather than on the welfare of my own people. You can go in there and you can do battle for that, but realize when you do, you're going to be taking on the majority of 535 people who owe their power position in some ways to the military industrial complex. That is an awesome titanic battle in the making. Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, the former chief of staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell, currently a distinguished professor at the College of William & Mary. Thank you very much. Thanks, Aaron. Good to be with you again. Good luck to you and stay healthy.